0: Get started here. We got behind last week, so this week I'm just going to have to give it up, it's, we're going to be late, or behind, that's the way it is, so that's okay though, don't want to rush or anything, so let's turn over the first kings though, we want to look at the north revolts, but we never really did finish up. Solomon's downfall, which we dealt with last week, or we started to deal with here in, uh, chapter 11. First Kings. But let's, uh, let's stand and we'll read chapter 12. That's where we wanted to be today. We'll get to a little bit of it. Chapter 12, and let's read down through verse 15. This is, of course, where uh, the north revolts, the beginning of it anyway, and the reason for it, and so forth. So in 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, and unfortunately, we're going to, when we get done with this, we'll explain who Jeroboam is and why this all takes place, but, you know. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt when he had fled from King Solomon, when Jeroboam returned from Egypt, then he returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, and really when it says all the assembly of Israel, it's talking primarily of the northern tribes. Your father made our yoke heavy, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Leoboam took counsel with the old men who stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, Now think about it. These are the older men who served the wisest man who ever lived. Right. So you would think they would probably have something useful to offer of their experience. And so he says, how do you advise me to answer this people? In verse 7, and they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that you answer, that we answer this people who have said to me? Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas your, my father laid a heavy yoke uh, on you, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplines you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said come to me again the third day and the king answered the people harshly and forsaken the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying my father made your yoke heavy but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for it was. A turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Again, this is, and so here is the really most important verse in the chapter. That he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the, uh, a, a Shelanite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebuch. You may be seated. Hmm. All right, so that's the result of Solomon's downfall. And, uh, and of course the Lord had told Solomon that because of your Idolatry, I will, I'm gonna rend the kingdom away from your son, but I'm only gonna rend away ten tribes. I'm gonna leave one tribe by that day, that by that time really considered to be, uh, a couple of tribes. Uh, so, because he still had a work to do. He still had to send the Messiah. So, cause northern tribes were all gonna be dispersed and forgotten, and there had to be some Jews left for him to carry out the, the, the giving of the Messiah. And so that's what, we kind of left it there last week in chapter 11, as Solomon uh, turns to idolatry and brings all this about. We saw that Solomon's weakness was close relationships with idolaters. Of course, he was unequally yoked. Not only did he have a thousand wives, more or less. They were, uh, by and large, uh, from other countries and pagan. We uh, noticed that we are not to be unequally yoked and must be very careful to not be in situations where you are the one influence and not the one who influences when it comes to our interaction and, and, the, and our, the close proximity with this world uh there there you know there are those like the amish for instance i think the fundamentalists to a degree were historically have been like that where you just kind of separate yourselves from the culture completely well, you, you can't obey the Great Commission. You can't, you know, you can't be a light to the world and salt to the world if you do that. But that doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as Christian separation as 1 Corinthians 6 deals with, where first of all, spiritually, I am to keep myself untainted from this world. And so I gotta figure that out in a physical way how can I be around and minister to lost people, but yet not to the point where I really am just around them and they're influencing me and so forth. And so we dealt some with that. So it's one thing to be a sinner. This is going back to Solomon and the basic problem with Israel. It's one thing to be a sinner, but it's another thing to worship false gods over the true God. There was provision made in the law to have their sins forgiven, but there was no provision in the law for idolatry. That was basically breaking covenant. And there was only one end to that. And so, it's some good things to kind of keep in mind. Um, but but let me just try to finish up chapter 11 here. Because um, after um, Solomon falls into idolatry, and starting in verse 9, it, we see that the Lord raises up um, adversaries. Really, this is in, in verse 14, where it speaks of three different adversaries that were raised up in... Two of these, the first two uh, that are mentioned here, Hadad, the Edomite, and then later, um, Reason, down to verse 23. Uh, these were people who were more or less Solomon's age who um, remembered the destruction that David had on their, whether it be the Edomites, uh, where Joab basically slaughtered all the men of the Edomites at some point and then so th- they had a grudge against Israel because of the wars with David and so once Solomon becomes king they work it out so they can be a thorn to flesh and do raiding parties and stuff like that because they hated uh Israel because of that the third um Uh, adversary is found in verse 26 and this is Joab uh, the son of Nebot and uh, we'll look at him in just a moment but I just wanted to mention here uh, sorry going back to verse 9 it says the Lord was angry with Solomon and I think for a lot of people's theology the whole idea of God being angry with anybody especially someone who would be considered a believer Uh, I don't think they know how to process that. I don't think it's in their vocabulary. It's not in their theology. When you've got people who refuse to even mention the wrath of God or hell, sin, and we see so much today, it's so prevalent. Uh, The idea that God can be angry with us is is something that they can't uh, probably comprehend. But we need to not be thrown by that. that. The Bible teaches that God can be angry with us, when we sin, there is a breaking of fellowship. Uh, he can have displeasure. And at the same time, though, because we're in the beloved, we're in Christ, we're still Father's son. We're still a child of God. But just like you can make your own natural uh, father angry and de- the fellowship is broken and he has to deliver uh, chase the chastening rod upon you, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. But there's a sense in which you have removed yourself from the experience of his love. And you are now experiencing his wrath. And that happens. And you see it in the Psalms a lot where uh, things happen uh, it, it, under chastening. And uh, so, um, for instance, Jude one twenty. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And, you know, there, you know, people run around, well, God's love is unconditional. You can't ever get removed from it. Well, that's one side of the coin. That is that is true as far as it goes. But this, again, this is what happens when we our theology is based on proof text and not a, a, a good, a, a full understanding of God's word. Um. it is possible for us to remove ourselves from the love of God. And again, not not the justifying love of God, but the experience of God's love and to to enjoy God. And we have a duty to keep ourselves faithful to the Lord so that we can experience that. And we've talked about this. I won't spend a whole lot of time here. One thing that I thought was interesting, I, I know a whole group of of, of churches and, and pastors, uh, that have been around since the, say, sixties, seventies, where they were, in their heyday. And, uh, it all kind of spring from one church in Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, they had a school for preachers. The preachers went out. Uh, the, theologically, they were pretty sound. They were grace, uh, maybe grace to a fault, but sound people. I, I, the son of this guy used to pastor near me in North Carolina. I've, I, I knew him pretty well. Uh, and, and they, you know, but they were, it was, it's, it's interesting that everybody who came from that school sounded like the original guy there who, who, who's headed it up. It's like, they became little pre, uh, reflections of that guy, uh, in their mannerisms and everything, which is always a little scary. It's always a little cult-like when that happens, but anyway. They, <laughs> to the not going to get involved in fact of his son, who I knew, who yeah. okay. very well, who preached about an hour away from me, we were talking one day, and, and, I, and I said, you know, I'm having a problem with my church. There's a guy who's working at I think we're going to the discipline, I was telling about it. And he later emailed me, and he says, you know, we had, I had such a great time of fellowship with you, brother, and you know, you brought that up, and that just kind of ruined the whole thing. So he got two pastors who, who needed encouragement of each other, but if you, if you bring up anything other than Christ, and the gospel, and grace, it's bad. I I had a a good friend of mine preaching in, uh, Georgia, who, two of these guys who were influenced by this group who had been in his church for, I don't know, two or three decades, they came up to him one day, and there's a point to all this, my They came up to him one day, and they said, look, all we want to hear from you is three things. I try, that's already a big red flag. I'm not going on in his mind, I'm sure. But it was like, it was justification, uh reconciliation, and I have to get the other off but I know one of them, what it was it? was me Today. We want to hear about Christ's work, about grace, about God's love to us, but we, you know, we don't want to hear anything, we don't, we don't want to hear, get off and uh, anything else. And of course eventually they left because he bore us, told them, well that's not going to happen. You know, because we've been called to preach the whole council of God, right? Well anyway, all that to uh, set up this, that there was one of these pastors in this group and his name was Don Fort Drummond. I doubt any of you have ever heard of him, right? But uh he was kind of well-known, certainly in certain areas. He gets into trouble. He preached in Kentucky. One day, he it is, uh, in a message he was given, said that David, he made this statement, David was just as much loved by God uh, as he lay in Bathsheba's arms as he ever was. And it caused a little bit of a stir, and I think rightly so. Because we know that in one sense, in in God's electing love, David was never less loved by God, right? His love is based on his love for Christ. But the problem is that his statement is downplaying the fact that that, uh, David was angering God. In doing that, and, it, and he was dishonoring the Lord, and it, it wasn't—it wasn't something you could dismiss as, "Well, God loves you no matter what you do," because it, think about the trouble it brought upon the, David's family and the kingdom of, of David, right? And so, uh, I just thought it was interesting that when I saw this phrase, "The Lord raised up." excuse me, verse 9, the Lord is angry with Solomon, that we've got to, again, remember that it is possible for us to displease the Lord. We have a responsibility, if we truly love Christ, to to live a life that pleases Him, to obey the royal law of love that that we read about in the New Testament, uh, and not just dismiss all that. And, And there's a lot of people out there who, as soon as you start talking about the demands of the gospel, the demands of the Bible upon people's lives, they immediately cry legalist you're a legalist, you're being a legalist you know, and all this kind of stuff and, and, it, and it's because they're one sided, and I, I think some of them are Christians, I just think that it, that it's, it's poor theology and, and we can't do that, it just honors the Lord, so we need to be careful about that the Lord was rightly angered he had appeared to him twice uh, uh, which was a great honor he had given him all, he had blessed him above anybody's anybody sense really, with his wisdom and his riches. And yet and later on in June here, it says, you know, that, uh, he who was able to keep you from falling away will present you, uh, before the glorious presence of God. So it's God that keeps us. And we see here, and all this is kind of an example here in First Kings of what happens when the Lord says, "Okay, you're going to be an idolater. I'm going to let you have your way, and just see how low well you're going to go." If, if we don't have the Holy Spirit working in us, keeping us faithful, we'll never make it there. And, and, and I understand one saved, only saved. I'm saying, but, if, but but how is that done? How is that accomplished? It is through the perseverance of the saints. It is not the presumption. It is not by saying, "Well, you know, even if I'm committing adultery, God loves me." Saying doesn't matter. See, we've got to be very careful here. So, in verse 14, the Lord responds to this and the chastening response, and we know that chastening is is really a gracious act of love. We've seen this with parent-child uh, of Proverbs Solomon makes it very clear in the Proverbs. But, uh, Hebrews 12 tells us the same thing, that God chastens those that he loves. because Precisely because it is so important. A life that dishonors the Lord is, is not a life that any good Christian should want, right? And so the Lord brings us back and, and helps us overcome these things. And so he raises up these adversaries in part to punish him for his idolatry. But in part because this is how he's going to bring about the next stage of Israel's history. We might wonder in all this, why, why didn't the Lord just allow Israel to, to flourish and to be, and for good things to go well? Well, again, the Lord does things the way he wants to and I don't think he makes us privy to all of it, but for one thing, Israel had to be reduced down because eventually Rome had to take over Israel because Christ was always gonna to have to hang on a cross because under the law that was how he, he could the curse of the of the people of the land could be placed upon him, right? So that was always gonna happen. So if, at some point crucifixion was gonna to have to come into the uh into existence and, and of course they were gonna to have to be subservient to other nations. So it was this is how the Lord did it, and we're seeing how he does it. And as we said, there the verse um 15 of chapter 12 as as we kind of get through all these things it reminds us that this is the lord fulfilling his word because the lord is the one who decides what's going to happen and so all this was taking place according to his word which is a great comfort to us to know that no matter how low things get you know you think about you know people you know the the culture how how low America has fallen morally. Um, it, it We don't need to be depressed. I mean, there's a sense in which you, you sin, and godlessness and sec, secularism and humanism is depressing because it's, it's not good, and it destroys people's life. The culture of death, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, which does not produce life, right? It only produces death. It produces Uh, disease. If you know anything about what goes on in the the emergency room in San Francisco for decades, it's it's the most disgusting and and awful thing to see what this kind of activity does to the body, right? So the culture of death is depressing in in a sense, because sin is sin. But we can rejoice because we know that we still have a mission to do, that the Lord is, the, we, we work in the power of God. It's all going to come to where he wants us to be. We're going to be in glory forever. So th- these these texts, and I like the way the Lord always never gets too far into this before he backs off and says, oh, by the way, this is what's really going on. You know, and don't get all, you know, sometimes people go through these texts, and, and as we're going to see here in just a moment with Rehoboam, if we even get to chapter 11 12. Um he does well, we read it though, right? He did listen to the older counselors. he listened to the younger counselors, and there is something there to learn about who you listen to. Uh, I would say it's not necessarily about it's it's wrong to listen to younger guys it's just you need to listen to godly people, but the passage isn't about the morality of it all that's there. it's about what God is doing that God's will, everything he said it was going to happen, always happens. And that to me is more important than all the other little moral principles that you can get out of it, which can be good. Nothing wrong with that. We have and we will do that. But it's about God bringing in the Messiah. That's the good news. See, this is all good news when you remember the, the narrative of where all this is going. And we don't want to forget the, the big thing is, like, I remember someone giving an example of that if, if I came to you and I said, look, last night there was, I saw a zebra washing dishes at my kitchen sink. And if you, pre, if you re- related that story, last night I saw a sink full of dishes that were being washed by a zebra. You know, you're emphasizing the wrong thing. No, it's the zebras. The, that's the big thing here, not, not. Not the dishes and not the sink, right? And sometimes we we read the scriptures and we we get all excited over the temple. And will there be a temple rebuilt? And, 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 and again, it is, it is all good, important things to think about. But it, no, the temple is about Jesus. It's about how it's fulfilled in the church and the body of Christ. You don't don't get excited or distracted by the lesser things at the expense of the more. Important things. Now Jer- Jeroboam, this third uh, uh, adversary, starting in chapter verse uh, twenty-six, he was a faithful servant of Solomon. He was a Jew, not not an Edomite or anything else. He was a Jew who did a very good job for Solomon, and Solomon rewards him. And uh, he's walking along one day, and uh, he he meets a prophet, a down in verse. Uh, twenty nine and in verse thirty it says And Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it in twelve pieces And he said to Jeroboam Take for yourselves ten pieces for thus says the Lord the God of Israel Behold I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. So not he doesn't just tell them this, he actually uses a, a piece of cloth to illustrate, tears it into twelve pieces and so forth. To illustrate it, to, to let Jeroboam know this is exactly what's going to happen, right? And so, um, verse uh, 31, so he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, which is repeated several times in this passage, right? The point of this is not Solomon's sin. That's 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 what that, that's the means by which God is doing all this. The point is the reason. Well, Solomon's. Gonna, you're not going to be able to have any more than I'm going to give you because I've still got to leave this one tribe intact that is Judah because it is through the line of David, through whom I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made to David concerning the Messiah. Right. So. He says, "But um, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of of Israel. And again, there's a reason for this. Because it's all uh, going to to end in Christ. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And we talked about then that these gods were, among other things, of hedge child sacrifice, and so forth. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him the ruler of all the days of his life, for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. So he's telling Joab that I'm going to do all this because of Solomon's idolatry, Right? But uh, David was faithful. Verse 35. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you you ten tribes. We just read about that with Rehoboam. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. So there's the third time it's repeated this. The city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you. And I will build you a sure house as I built for David. <clears throat> and I will give Israel to you. Now again, I don't think he's saying that you'll the Messiah will come through you, but you will have a sure kingdom, a, a, a royal lineage like David is going to have. <clears throat> Um, verse 37 and I will take you and you shall reign over all your, that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel and if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give David, uh, give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So that's kind of sets up what we just read a little while ago. But what's interesting about this is that Jeroboam is given the reason why all this is taking place, and it was idolatry. And we'll see here... um, and really next week, because I'm not going to get to it this week. I don't want to, it's just, I don't have time to get into it. But, uh, knowing that, he immediately sets up uh, idolatry in the northern tribes that lasts until they're carried away to Babylon. So it's like, knowing that the only way, I'm, God has given me the kingdom, and the only way I'm going to keep the kingdom is to be true and follow and obey the Lord. And he immediately thinks that somehow he's going to be able to keep the kingdom while rejecting the one who gave him the kingdom. It's not going to turn out well for him, right? And we wouldn't expect it to. So it's just, I mean, of of all the really dumb people in the Bible, Jeroboam is is one of the dumbest. And I say that not just spiritually, but when literally the, the prophet comes to you and everything he says comes true, and he rejects it and thinks that somehow there's another God out there who's going to um, do better. It's just beyond stupid. But again, not to get too far away from the understanding that that's what sin does to us. Sin says you don't need the Lord. <clears throat> so we're given here a little insight in how God's will is done among the nations. He sets them up he sets them down and he does so quite easily uh it doesn't matter again the solomon had the most powerful nation the most wisest man in the world and in one generation it it becomes one of the weakest because that's you know god raises them up he sets them down you can't outwit or outsmart the lord <clears throat> so um Verse, uh, this one, we'll finish up in verses 12 and 13. Let's go back there for a second. Where it says, Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, that is Jer- uh, Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Even in this chastening hand, there's mercy. God hasn't forgotten what he's going to do, but uh, he's merciful. He still has promises to keep. The northern tribes will be destroyed. They will be lost and forgotten. But through Judah must come the promised one. And so this is reemphasized, as I said, three other times in verses 31, verse 34, and then down in verse 39. And so God always keeps his promises. And, and again, as, as his people, it's so important for us to keep that in mind that no matter how dark, and if you think about how dark things must have looked, we didn't even get to it, but the latter part of, chap, of chapter 12, when Jeroboam comes back for the answer three days later, Rehoboam tells him, and they all, and Jeroboam says, okay, every man to his own house, we have no more to do with David, we have no more to do with, with David's line. And just like that, it's reduced to one tribe, a powerful tribe of of the 12 tribes, but it's reduced and it's done. And so, yeah, we all, we all, you can imagine Israel at that time, how dark it was. And and we always want to live in the golden age of Solomon, right? Who wouldn't? And, And that's what makes it difficult today because, you know, most of us remember how much better things used to be. America has never been perfect by any stretch. And there's a lot of bad things always have gone on in America. But you 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 get to realize, you know what? Those days are past. And and I would be very surprised if America is ever what it was. Whether spiritually, physically, or any other way, right? But it doesn't matter. Because God is raising up who He will. He's putting down who He will. His purpose is moving forward. And just because we no longer are as in a comfortable situation as we used to be, doesn't change anything. It doesn't mean that things are worse. It means that things are different. God's doing his will in a different way. We can rely on the fact that, as as, uh, God told David and now he tells um, Solomon, Uh, I have given sure mercies to David. I have made sure promises that will take place. The Messiah is coming. This is all going to end in your salvation. And right, that's what we saw in the book of Revelation. Listen, if Revelation, if you just kind of, as you're reading through it, there's not a lot of good things going on in Revelation. It's a lot of bad things going on in Revelation. But we're never to read it pessimistically. Because it's, it's all moving forward to exactly what God uh, says it would be, the return of the Lord in the, in the uh, new heavens and the new earth, right? So, we might read all this and wonder why this is the way the Lord's doing it, but that's not us to question. This is the way things are, and we are to obey the best we can, and we have every reason to do so, right? Okay, so we got done a little bit early today. Any questions or or comments? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day. And we pray that you might uh, stay with us and just uh, use us as we, uh, Lord, deal with some uh, difficult, interesting but difficult portions of Scripture. And we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand it and to find the the necessary practical implications of all these things uh, that we might as a church be able to serve you. Uh, the way we should. So we ask, Lord, that you might be with us today and work among each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.